0: Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Jack, the podcast about all things Special Counsel. It is Sunday, November 19th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And Andy, it's been one year since Jack Smith was appointed Special Counsel. And next week will be our one-year anniversary. I honestly felt like it took me months to start this show (laughs) after the the appointment of Special Counsel Jack Smith. But apparently we did it in a week.
1: (laughs) You know, sometimes you get a good idea, you just got to roll with it, right? So that's... (laughs) That's what we did. And oh my God, look, look how long, look how far along we've come in a year. It's amazing. Uh, Everybody, I'm Andy McCabe, and we have lots to cover today, uh, including the battle over whether the DC trial should be televised and the ongoing appeal of Judge Chutkin's, don't call it a gag order, which is now with the DC Circuit Court of Appeals.
0: Yep, yep. We also have an inside look at that meeting between Trump lawyers and Jack Smith, you know, where... The Trump lawyers pitched their case against the indictment of their client Donald Trump, uh, as well as a few motions in both the D.C. case and the Florida case. We can't get out of can't get out of a week without a ton of motions. That's right. And then Andy, I have some questions for you about a few things that happened in Fulton County this week and how it might impact the special counsel investigations.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. So let's go with the back and forth over the broadcast of the D.C. trial. All right. All right, so as we know, DOJ filed a motion against televising the trial. And then per local rules, DOJ reported in that motion that they conferred with Trump's lawyers and that Trump took no position on televising the proceedings. (laughs) Then, of course, late on Friday night, Trump's lawyers, which is I think their favorite filing time of the week, uh, his lawyers filed a motion that they are in favor of televising the trial and it's a barn burner. It's a typical kind of uh, incendiary political filing that cites zero case law.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you know, I I thought Andy that Trump changed his position because he knew the trial wouldn't be televised. It's rule 53. It's the rule of law. You don't we don't televise trials. And he wanted to get in there and file a motion that would be denied by Judge Chutkin so he could point to it as being unfair much like He's crying victim up in New York for not having a jury trial with Judge Angoron because he didn't check the box and fight to see if he could get a jury trial. I don't think the law allows it there, but he didn't even bother trying. So now he's trying, right, so that he can point back at this. That, that was kind of what I thought would seem to be the obvious, you know, yeah. um, motive here.
1: And that makes perfect sense because what he's doing is playing to the crowd. Right, Not to the court, not to the law. He's just playing to the crowd. He's playing to the crowd, but he's not even on trial yet, and he's already playing to the crowd. So if anything, the filing shows what a complete circus he would uh, turn a televised trial into. But in any case, here's some of the language from Trump's motion. Quote, For the first time in American history, an incumbent administration has charged its main leading electoral opponent with a criminal offense. Aware that its charges are meritless, the prosecution has sought to proceed in secret, forcing the nation and the world to rely on biased secondhand accounts coming from the Biden administration and its media allies. As a result, the citizens of our great country are unable to review for themselves what the facts of this case show and how unfairly President Trump is being treated at the hands of his political opponent. Hmm. The prosecution wishes to con- to continue this travesty in darkness. <laughs> President Trump calls for sunlight. Every person in America and beyond should have, I'm sorry, I mean the the Buzz Lightyear reference. Yeah. Every person in America and beyond <laughs> should have the opportunity to study this case firsthand and watch. If there is a trial, President Trump exonerates himself of these baseless and politically motivated charges. At every turn the court has, at the prosecutor's urging, denied President Trump his inalienable rights, including, without limitation, the rights to a fair trial in a politically diverse venue, due process, a judge without the appearance of bias or prejudgment, prepare for trial, and the right to speak freely and publicly about this case, in the face of the prosecution's egregious lies. And I have to say, I apologize for the hackneyed reading of this thing, but I dare any of you to pull this thing up and try to read it
0: (laughs) coherently
1: yourself. It's a little, um, how shall I say, overdone?
0: Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what we call overdone. Yeah. Uh, What's the quote? That's what, back where I come from, that's what we call an overcooked ham, (laughs) right? (laughs) This now, is clearly an overcut. <laughs> the Department of Justice responded to Trump's ridiculous filing, notifying the court that Trump's lawyers misled the special counsel's office and the court by first saying they took no position, right? Department of Justice asked for permission to file a response to Donald's missive saying, We have it ready, it's four pages, it's ready to go, we'll file it as soon as we get leave from the court. And leave from the court means permission. From the court would you have to get if you want to add a filing or a surreply that's not in the basic rules, you need to ask for leave of court or for permission to make that filing. And they're like, we got it ready to go. And here's what they said. In that filing, they said the government accurately reported that to the court on November 10th. However, the defendant reverse course and filed a response in support of the applications. The defendant's response did not engage with the relevant federal rule of criminal procedure or cite any applicable case law, and instead made false and incendiary claims about the administration of his criminal case. The government requests an opportunity to respond to the defendant's claims and is prepared to file its proposed reply, which is four pages, immediately upon receiving leave from the court. The government sought the positions of the applicants and the defendant on the motion for leave to file. The defendant objects. So they conferred about This four page filing with Trump's lawyers and Trump's lawyers object. Uh, NBC Universal Media LLC does not object. The media coalition wants the opportunity to address any issues raised by the government's reply in its reply that is currently due on November 17th and accordingly does not object as long as the government files its reply by November 14th.
1: Yeah. So essentially they're saying look, we have a four page response, which is pretty brief as these things go. And the people who actually made this motion initially, which was the media, not Trump or Jack Smith, they don't object to the government filing their response. But, of course, the defendant has objected. No, I don't want to see your four pages. Yeah, of course. Yikes. And, of course, in under an hour, Judge Chutkin granted leave for DOJ to file their reply to Trump's demands. And as promised, within minutes of receiving permission from the court to file, Jack Smith filed his response. And here's some of what he had to say. Quote, the defendant's response does not cite a single rule or case in support of his position because there are none. Instead, decrying the alleged unfairness of the unequivocal and constitutionally sound broadcast prohibition that has governed federal criminal trials, no matter the defendant, for decades the defendant's response is a transparent effort to demand special treatment to try his case in the courtroom of public opinion and to turn his trial into a media event. The court should reject this attempted at distraction and deny the applications. The defendant offers no legal argument or case law to support his demand that the trial in this case be conducted unlike that for every other federal criminal defendant. His purported interest in sunlight does not cure that defect.
0: <laughs> I that was a good shot. It's a good, that's a good line.
1: The defendant ignores that high profile federal criminal trials have long proceeded in accordance with the broadcast prohibition under the rules and that they have garnered significant and detailed media coverage of courtroom proceedings. This has remained true in the context of trials related to the January 6, 2021 attack on the United States Capitol, including on seditious conspiracy charges. Just like every other criminal defendant, Trump can file motions to dismiss, like he has, and which this court is considering. Yet he complains that he has no redress and even complains about a change of venue motion that he has never made. <laughs> that's a, a good point. Yeah, the argument about, oh, I should, I'm entitled to a better venue with a politically diverse uh, group of jurors. Yet yeah, that's not reflected anywhere in this case so far. He never made that motion. So the defendant peppers his response with various references to fairness, but what he actually seeks is to defy a uniform and longstanding broadcast prohibition that was crafted precisely with fair and orderly trial proceedings in mind. He desires instead to create a carnival atmosphere from which he hopes to profit by distracting, like many fraud defendants try to do from the charges (laughs) against him. And here, here you go, my favorite part. Although the defendant proclaims that his goal is for the American public to watch the proceedings in this case, he has consistently made clear his desire to delay the trial in this case or to ensure that one does not happen at all. If the defendant sought sunlight, as he claims, he should welcome the opportunity to put the government to its proof at trial. In his response to the applications, he shows that he will continue to attempt to avoid answering for his criminal conduct in the courtroom while at the same time publicly grandstanding on the court's docket,
0: nice, yeah, That's a good a nice filing. swing,
1: four pages. But man, he makes a couple of like really outstanding points there.
0: Yeah. Um, now he didn't bring up at all the fact that he's just doing this so that he can claim he didn't get a fair trial. The, you know, which is was my initial thought, but that was a a very very good. Four-page motion, I think. Yeah,
1: he's. In, you can imagine the rally speeches. You know, it's going to be. I. I was fighting for you. I wanted you to be able to see this travesty of justice, but the judge doesn't want that, and the prosecutors don't want it because they want to continue to They're proceed. Do it
0: in darkness and
1: secret. Right. This is the first trial that's ever not been televised.
0: Yeah, the Biden administration is (laughs) trying to hide it from you because I'm their number one top amazing political opponent.
1: Yeah. Most leading. And did I mention leading opponent? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what's going to
1: happen. Yeah, we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah, we look forward to that. All right, uh, we have more from the DC case, but we need to take a quick break. So, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back. All right, let's stay in D.C., but let's hop from the D.C. District Court to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and the ongoing fight over the don't call it a gag order gag order issued by Judge Chutkin. We know that the Department of Justice asked for the limited restrictions on Trump's pretrial statements, and then Judge Chutkin temporarily stayed the limited gag order and then ruled against Trump's motion for a stay and reinstated the order. Now, of course, While the order was stayed, Trump took full advantage and issued statements that would otherwise have violated the order had it been in effect. Then Trump appealed Judge Chutkin's decision, and the appeals court put a temporary stay on the order until its hearing on the matter, which is scheduled for November 20th. And of course, Trump has taken advantage again, calling Jack Smith a dangerous thug and attacking his family and his wife during his vermin speech in New Hampshire last weekend. That's what I've dubbed it, the vermin speech, where he, neo-Nazi echoes, uh, Hitler echoes, Mussolini echoes in that speech. And now, Department of Justice has filed its brief to the Circuit Court of Appeals. And in it, they mentioned those comments that Trump made about the special counsel and his family.
1: Yeah, they do. I think it's probably the only uh, benefit to having to continue to fight this thing and this and the stay of this thing is that every at every level they get to add more evidence to their to their argument. But in this case, the DOJ's brief is sixty-seven pages long, and there's uh, also a supplemental joint appendix that has been filed under seal, so we can't see that. After a statement saying that the DC court has jurisdiction, DOJ begins with a brief statement of the issue, and here's how they frame it. The issue is whether the district court permissibly issued an order under local criminal rule 57.7C, prohibiting the parties and their counsel from making extrajudicial statements targeting certain trial participants while expressly leaving the defendant free to make statements criticizing the government generally, including the current administration or the Department of Justice, statements asserting that the defendant is innocent of the charges against him or that his prosecution is politically motivated or statements criticizing the campaign platforms or policies of the defendant's current political rivals.
0: Yep, so that's the issue. That's whether or not the district court permissibly issued this order. And this is, you know, they're talking to the appeals court now. Then Jack Smith repeats what um, we heard him say in his filing opposing Trump's motion to strike January 6th riot language from the indictment, right? Um, He kind of repeats that and says, although the indictment does not charge the defendant with incitement to insurrection, see Title 18, U.S. Code, Section 2383, it squarely alleges that he is responsible for the events of January 6th, 2021, where, quote, lives were lost, blood was shed. Portions of the Capitol building were badly damaged, and the lives of members of the House and Senate, as well as aides, staffers, and others who were working in the building were endangered. And then the DOJ gets to the heart of the matter, that Trump continues to make public statements that could undermine the integrity of the proceedings, the process, the fair trial process. Quote, the defendant has persistently used social media to make prejudicial comments about the case and its participants. Three days after the indictment, he issued the public threat, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. And then followed through on that threat by using disparaging and inflammatory language to target the district court, the special counsel, and trial witnesses who, as he knew from discovery, were expected to offer inculpatory testimony against him. Inculpatory is the opposite of exculpatory. exculpatory is stuff that's good for you. Inculpatory is stuff that's bad for you.: Yes.
1: Inculpatory gets you in prison.
0: In prison. <laughs> inculpatory, in prison. That's a good way to remember it. There you go. Um, and yeah, as an exculpatory information has to be turned over under Brady rules, right? Like That's you right. have to hand that over. He goes on to say, he described the presiding district judge as a fraud and a hack. He repeatedly called the prosecutors handling the case, deranged thugs and lunatics and asserted that one of them whom he had identified by name had gone to the white house for an improper purpose, a claim that he knew to be false from the materials he received in discovery. He described his former vice president, or a foreseeable trial witness, as delusional and not a very good person, who wants to show he's a tough guy. He said that the person he had appointed chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, another foreseeable trial witness, had done something, quote, so egregious that in, in times gone by the punishment would have been death. He said that potentially unfavorable testimony from his former chief of staff was a lie made up to secure immunity adding that only a weakling and coward would provide such testimony. I mean, this is all just complete, blatant witness intimidation.
1: Yeah, you can imagine like some, he's thought, how can I best ensure that these rulings will go against me? I'll continue to say Mm -hmm. the exact things that the prosecutors called out, the things they cautioned against, the things they told the judge to look out for, I'll just continue doing exactly that. The special counsel then illustrates how Trump's statements result in intimidation and threats. So like not just we're worried about this is going to happen, but how it's actually happening. They say four days after the indictment and one day after his post stating, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. One of his followers called the district court's chambers saying, quote, hey, you stupid slave N-word. If Trump doesn't get elected in 2024, we are coming to kill you, so tread lightly, bitch. You will be targeted personally, publicly, your family, all of it, close quote. Hmm. Government goes on to say, That episode is part of a pattern stretching back years in which people publicly targeted by the defendant are, as a result of the targeting, subject to harassment, threats, and intimidation. They then cite, an election commissioner who was targeted by the defendant in the wake of the 2020 election described the results in congressional testimony, stating, quote, "...after the president tweeted at me by name, calling me out the way he did, the threats became much more specific, much more graphic, and included not just me by name, but included my members of my family by name, their ages, our address, pictures of our home, just every bit of detail that you could imagine." And that was what changed with that tweet. (laughs) An election worker likewise testified, do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? When someone as powerful as the president of the United States eggs on a mob, that mob will come.
0: Mm.
1: A state judge likewise described needing additional police protection after the defendant targeted him on social media. Quote, more recently, the defendant posted to social media a photograph of a state judge's law clerk, along with the caption falsely alleging that she was the girlfriend of a political adversary. The presiding judge there ordered the removal of the post, but has stated, quote, since the commencement of this bench trial, my chambers have been inundated with hundreds of harassing, threatening phone calls, voicemails, emails, letters, and packages.
0: Mm. Yeah. So that that whole section there is designed to to basically say these are his threats and we're not just saying, you know, that his statements are are made and there's no consequences. Here here are the consequences of yeah, his statements. Yeah, it's,
1: it's we spend a lot of time theorizing about the damage that Donald Trump's wildly dangerous statements can make. And that's kind of where this motion started out. Hey, if he says things, it might intimidate witnesses. But now we're actually citing specific instances of it happening. This is no longer like a theoretical discussion. It's They're saying, here's the, here's the receipts, right? This is happening day to day.
0: Yeah, here's the cause and effect. And there's just so much evidence of it, of Trump's statements attacking his perceived political opponents and the impact that it has. And then Jack Smith reminds us that Trump uses this well-known dynamic to his advantage, and then links it to his threats against Mike Pence on January 6th. Check this out. DOJ says, when the defendant did, in fact, repeatedly target the vice president on January 6, 2021, members of the violent crowd at the Capitol responded by chanting, Hang Mike Pence, where is Pence? Bring him out and Traitor Pence. DOJ also points out in a footnote the reasons the order extends to the trial participants' families. And cites Trump's recent comments in his New Hampshire speech, quote, the defendant has recently resumed targeting the special counsel's family while the order has been administratively stayed. DOJ then repeats that the order is narrowly tailored. It's not vague. It doesn't violate First Amendment rights. And there's ample evidence that his statements have the desired effect. So the hearing, as we've said, November 20th, uh, and it's about whether the stay should remain in place during appeal. Each side will have 20 minutes to present their arguments. Uh, I'm of the mind that the appeals court will lift the stay and reinstate the limited gag order probably pretty quickly. And I imagine uh, Trump will then ask the Supreme Court for an emergency stay, and the Supreme Court will probably grant a temporary administrative stay while they decide whether or not they're going to take it up. So don't be you you'll see a headlines scotus you know you know blocks the gag order they'll it'll they'll make it sensational but the, these these types of appeals 99 times out of 100 will get an administrative stay because if you don't stay it while you decide whether or not you're going to fully stay it or even hear the case then the appeal is moot and you have robbed that person of due process
1: yeah you, you've basically judged it you, yeah. right you've decided by not staying it and It's frustrating, I know, because it seems like you're fighting this battle in two channels constantly and all this focus on the stay, it feels like, well, when are they ever going to decide whether whether this thing is actually, this restriction, you know, is is effective and going to be upheld and enforced on him? You're essentially deciding that with the stay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If the Supreme Court is like, Oh, a temporary administrative stay, and then they say, okay, we've decided, no, we're not going to stay this, or we're yeah. going to remand it to the lower court's decision who said they're not going to stay this. The appeal goes on, right? but it's essentially moot because they've decided not to stay it pending appeal. That's right. Yeah. Now, Andy, speaking of gag orders, there is not a gag order or a limited gag order or anything in place in Fulton County for the district attorney, Fonnie Willis's racketeering case with Donald Trump and 14 other defendants now. But Fonnie Willis has filed a motion to revoke bond for Harrison Floyd. Harrison Floyd was one in the the conspiracy to intimidate Ruby Freeman. If you remember. Yep. Now she's the first prosecutor in any of the Trump cases to try and revoke bond for any defendant involved in a Trump case. And I just have a couple of questions. First of all, if there's enough to file a motion to revoke Harrison Floyd's bond, how in hell is there not enough to file a motion to revoke Donald Trump's bond? And again, this isn't based on any gag order. This is the, the bond conditions, the you know, the release yeah. conditions. You can't intimidate witnesses. And it's in yeah. there. And that's what Harrison Floyd's been doing. So she's doing this to Harrison Floyd, but not Donald Trump. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that.
1: Well, it's it's really interesting. I and I think first you have to kind of uh, acknowledge the the difference in strategy here, right? W- Willis is not wasting her time with gag orders, which are basically an instruction to the defendant, "Thou shalt not do whatever X, Y, and Z." She's not even wasting her time with that. She's like, it's already, You, no one's allowed to intimidate witnesses in this state. You already have a bond order in place. I'm just going right for the throw you back in jail for, for doing something that I argue violates your bond. So yeah. once again, Willis I, is showing to be a person of considered action.
0: And I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it, this occurs to me in the DC case. The DOJ initially wanted Judge Chutkin to not only issue the limited gag order, but to include it in the bail conditions. And she said, no, we're not going to do that at this time. And it, it dawns on me that if she had made it, you know, so that they can put it in the bail conditions, then as this goes through appeal, she wouldn't, no one would be, the prosecutors wouldn't be able to revoke his bond on bail conditions only. But I think that because it's not included in this appeal going up and all the way up to the Supreme Court probably, for whether or not this limited gag order needs to be stayed because the bail conditions are not included or, it's, or that they're not trying to include this in the bail conditions. Um, if for some reason, um, Jack Smith wanted to file a motion like Fannie Willis did to revoke Trump's bail for witness intimidation, I, I imagine that he could do that at any time.
1: I think so. I, like I said, I think it shows a very different, a, a very different <laughs> strategic approach, right? I, I thought that Chutkin's decision early on not to include this admonition in the bond order was a way of leaving herself opportunities to escalate action against him, right? She was kind of, she's like wanted to leave the all if we get to a point of a gag order, I want to be able to kind of uh, walk through that escalation process. But very, with an eye, very keenly watching the the First Amendment argument that invariably right. he would make. So that's yeah. been her approach to it. On the state level, she's, you know, Fonnie Willis is just taking a direct cut at it. But not with Trump. You could, you could, yeah, you could make the argument that like she's being more careful about him because of, you know, unlike the other defendants, and certainly unlike this one, Harrison Floyd, Trump is running for office. He is in this uh, kind of constitutionally protected bubble of political speech right now. And so I think she's just treading more lightly around him and taking this sort of action against him than she is clearly around Floyd. Because if you look at some of the things that they're citing that Floyd has done or said, um, it doesn't seem to be nearly at the level of the things that right. that Trump has said about um, about it's Jack so Smith and others. So yeah. they're talking about Floyd made um, posts on Twitter, which I refuse to call X so he makes he makes he throws up posts on Twitter directed at Ruby Freeman, Gabe Sterling, Jenna Ellis. And if you look at them, they're all like, they're not really that graphic or anything. You know, he, he makes a comment that like, uh, so here's, this is quoting from a CNN article about it. Why would my team leak Jenna Ellis and Proffer videos when there is better stuff? For instance, Ruby Freeman's job was the reconciliation of ballots, he wrote. Uh, she wasn't even supposed to be on a scanner, so it's like this kind of contorted argument against a comment that someone else must have made, theorizing that somehow Harrison Floyd and his lawyers were responsible for the leak of all these uh, all this video testimony to the Washington Post.
0: I mean, right? But then you've got Trump calling calling Meadows a coward and a weakling and a you know a, who's a potential witness in Fulton County. Yeah,
1: I mean, like like his statements are really kind of down in the weeds, you know, like almost like a conversation we would have here. It doesn't really come off, I don't think, very threatening. So it's hard to reconcile the two, to be honest. You know, maybe, look, Floyd is an easier defendant to go after than Trump. he got fewer lawyers. He's got less money. He's been in jail before. Maybe it's easier to make the argument that there could be violence simmering here. This could be indicative of some sort of personal effort to go after witnesses because, you know, he he uh, got it, already got into a scuffle with law enforcement, which ultimately led to him serving some time when finally presented in this case, unlike any other defendant. I don't know. I'm just kind of making uh, guesses here.
0: I think my guess, honestly, Fannie Willis has yet to secure a plea deal from the Ruby Freeman intimidation group of conspirators. Mm-hmm. And so if he's in pre-trial jail and this trial doesn't happen until she's I think she told the Washington Post end of 2024 going into 2025 then maybe he might be more willing to cut a deal with Fonnie Willis and that's the that's my thought maybe that 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 perhaps that's it because nothing gets you dealing faster than sitting your ass in jail um yeah it could be I
1: I the The biggest kind of hint that I found in the reporting was um, she apparently says in her filing that uh, Freeman, speaking about Ruby Freeman, quote, has been a frequent target of the defendant's intimidating communications because of and in response to the defendant's intimidating communications. Witness, Ruby Freeman has been the subject of renewed threats of violence from third Mm. parties. So. I kind of feel like this is all connected to Ruby Freeman. Ruby Freeman is very much her witness, right? She's yeah. key to that whole intimidation piece, which is a strong part of the case. She is a resident of Georgia, of Fulton County. She's someone who volunteered to help support the electoral process. I would expect that Phony Willis feels a great deal of responsibility, um, not just to protect Ruby Freeman and and Shay but also to respond to threats that are directed at them. And if election Trump,
0: workers. Yeah, know, and election, election
1: workers generally. So I don't know, I just, and, and the, she used the word renewed threats of violence. So who knows, you, I mean, Ruby Freeman might be in the midst of a real, um, of a, t- a per- particularly tough situation, like the threats have come back in a way that they weren't for a while. Who knows, I'm just guessing there. But I guess yeah. the thing to see is if Trump takes a direct aim at Ruby Freeman... What does Fonnie Willis do then?
0: Yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, And then uh, finally, we know that um, there were several uh, this week um, proffer videos, as we were talking about, of uh, Sidney Powell, Scott Hall, Ken Chesbro, Jenna Ellis, the people who have pled guilty. Um, Their proffer videos were released uh, to the media by Misty Hampton's attorney, who admitted it in court to Judge McAfee, who then put a protective order in place over... (laughs) Over the um, discovery, shut
1: the barn door after the horse ran away. But okay,
0: <laughs> true, yes, um, and, but you know, I mean, and and because Fonnie Willis already had filed for a protective order and he hadn't ruled on it, uh, but you know, he did. He did make a very good point, like because you know that everybody's sort of arguing, you know, we want to be able to release this stuff, we want to be able to release discovery, but you know, he made the point. That a lot of discovery doesn't get into trial as admissible evidence. A lot of it is, is right. barred from motions in limine, um, and if that evidence that is not allowed at trial because it would, you know, prejudice a jury, if that's out to the jury pool, you could prejudice the jury pool. So that's right. He, you know, he's this is for the criminal defendants, their rights uh, to a, to a fair fair trial, but. I was wondering about the impact of the leaked proffer videos on maybe Jack Smith's case, because Ch- Chesbro's lawyer, for example, went on TV yesterday and admitted that the reason Chesbro pled guilty was he pled guilty for failing to put contingency language in the elector's certificates. And he admitted to that. His lawyer admitted that he admits to that on, on television. We know Arizona's investigating fraudulent electors. We know Nevada is. Michigan is uh, already, you know, uh, indicted their fraudulent electors is continuing their investigation. But Jack Smith might also be um, interested in this, especially since I believe Ken Chesbro is one of the unindicted co-conspirators in the Trump DC case. And so admitting guilt on television of your client makes me think he must have already spoken to Jack Smith or he's just terrible at lawyering.
1: Well, either of those are probably likely um, <laughs> <laughs> entirely possible outcomes. I think there's kind of, you have to look at this at like immediate impact and then like follow-on effects, right? Immediate impact, it's fascinating to see. I'm quite sure that Jack Smith's team has taken a hard look at these as well because it's interesting intelligence that they may not have had or may not ever get um, from Fulton County, uh, depending on how everything goes down there. So it's interesting uh, to see, it's always going to be interesting to them to see uh, potential witnesses or potential subjects in follow-on cases, how they answer questions um, under oath. What's the significance of the videos themselves in terms of potential evidence in a federal case? I think not very much. Right. You know, they're, they're all, a lot of what you're hearing, like, of course, the Jenna Ellison uh, comments about her interactions with Trump's director of communications, we're not going to leave the White House. Oh, Scavino. Scavino, yeah, Dan Scavino. Really interesting to hear, but not particularly, you know, significant as evidence against anyone. It's It's at least hearsay. It's possibly yeah. double hearsay, depending on what you're trying to use it for. Uh, whether or not you could jam it into an exception to the hearsay rule is a more complicated question, but pro- my guess is probably not.
0: Yeah, I mean, all these things kind of boil down to their lawyers, these Fulton County's defendants' lawyers, reaching out to Jack Smith and whatever they decide or determine or agree upon, they, they do their own testimony uh, up there, the grand of jury Of course,
1: yeah. of course, yeah. Now the question is like f- the wider impact of them is an interesting question because you s- the fact that this stuff has been exposed – is going to compel people like Cheesebro's lawyer to go out on television and answer questions about it (laughs) and then say really dumb things that can put your client in further jeopardy. I mean, you can imagine some of the people, the actual uh, people who've been implicated as fake electors in Arizona and Nevada who are facing all kinds of legal challenges now could turn around and sue Cheesebro civilly for... (laughs) what his lawyer admits was his flaw in (laughs) drafting the document. So I Mm -hmm. just say that as one possible case, so there's a lot that could happen. There's ways that this could impact uh, the proceedings, either federally or in the state level. um, But
0: more like tangentially. Yeah, more tangentially, I think. Cool. Well, thank you for answering those questions. And um, we've got a lot more uh, to get to, including, and I'm so excited that somebody's written a book and that it's included because you and I sort of talked about what that meeting would be like between Trump's lawyers and Jack Smith. And now we have it. And we're going to talk about it right after this. I think we
1: had it pretty close. (laughs) We had uh, it
0: right (laughs) on the nose, my friend. (laughs) Stick around, everybody. We'll be right back with it.
1: Welcome back. Okay, reporter Jonathan Carl has a new book out called Tired of Winning. I love the title. Well done, (laughs) Jonathan. And in it, we get a better look at that meeting between Trump's lawyers and Jack Smith before the indictment.
0: Yep, yep. And Andy, you and I talked about that meeting and what it might look like when we first learned about it. And we learned about it the week that it happened, right? And I said, you know, I imagine Trump's lawyers pitching their case against indictment uh, with, with steely eyed Jack Smith, just sitting there quietly until everybody's finished and then saying, yeah, we'll take it under advisement. And then just like leaving. And you were like, yeah, I've been to these. That's pretty much how it goes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, full disclosure. I've had an inside, uh, line on this both professionally <laughs> and personally, unfortunately, but, uh, Nevertheless, now we have a little window inside that meeting from Carl's new book. Okay, so this reporting is from Kyle Cheney at Politico. Jack Smith's public image, shaped by his near invisibility since taking over the federal criminal cases against Donald Trump, has been that of a sullen, brooding, and hard-charging prosecutor. His steely glare, on display in two arraignments of the former president and in a handful of public photos and videos— has contributed to a sort of mythology around the veteran corruption prosecutor. And when Smith met privately with Trump's lawyers, who were making their final bid to stave off an indictment in Washington, D.C., he didn't break character. (laughs) ABC's Jonathan (laughs) Carl offers an account of the fateful July 27 meeting in his forthcoming book, Tired of Winning, that suggests Smith took the same wordless, unsmiling approach to Trump's attorneys that he's presented in his few public appearances. Quote, after some short pleasantries, Smith invited the Trump lawyers to sit at the conference table and offered them some water to drink. Yeah, that's right. Water. (laughs) No coffee, (laughs) no juice, no fresh raspberries. Okay, this is not the CIA. (laughs) This is DOJ. We didn't even want to have this meeting with you. All right, I'm obviously adding there, but uh, okay, so... Back to the book, Lauro quickly launched into a lengthy presentation, making the case that Smith should forgo the charges against Trump related to his bid to subvert the 2020 election. Sitting across the table from Smith and his prosecutors, Lauro spoke virtually uninterrupted for nearly an hour. And can I say I'm glad but we don't have to listen to that? <laughs> Lauro's presentation featured a now familiar case that Trump genuinely believed he won the election and was exercising his first amendment right to challenge it and raise questions that Trump was following the advice of his lawyers and that he'd already faced impeachment and an extensive congressional investigation over the matter. Indicting him would just inflame a divided country further quote, as Lauro spoke, the prosecutors took notes, but they said nothing. Smith waited until Laura was done speaking, and then, without commenting on what he had just heard, he bid the Trump lawyers farewell, Carl writes. According to sources with direct knowledge of the meeting, Smith did not ask a single question. And aside from the pleasantries at the start of the meeting, including the offer of a glass of water and the goodbye at the end, neither Smith nor the two prosecutors said anything at all. Five days later, Smith indicted Trump for January 6th. Smith had given Trump the lawyers no hint that the indictment was coming.
0: <laughs> yeah, and by the way, five hours after that meeting, he was uh, superseded in Mar-a-Lago. Yes. Yeah. For another conspiracy no hint. to obstruct judge justice. Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> I mean, exactly, exactly, exactly what we expected, and I, you know. It's funny, and I love the goofy descriptions of Jack Smith, the steely-eyed prosecutor, and you, I can tell you right now his uh, team is totally breaking his chops about that around the office, which is uh, <laughs> duly uh, warranted.
0: He's going around giving, like, Blue Steel, like, Zoolander's model look. Like, <laughs> that's the new joke. Like, hey, hey, Jack, Blue Steel, show us Magnum. It's not ready yet.
1: <laughs> and and re- In reality, Smith is probably thinking, like, I I just don't have a cool smile. I just I just don't know what to do in these situations. So I keep my mouth shut and try to look like I'm serious. I'm, I'm that's a guess. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is how they go. The prosecutors. You know, they don't. They they are giving the attorneys an uh, an option and an opportunity to make their argument you know, it's probably things they've already heard, they've already thought about, they've already discussed. So, uh, I mean, it, there, I think it is possible if they brought up something totally new, some like, um, you know, massively significant and previously unknown piece of evidence or a witness that was going to testify and could, you know, provide an alibi or something like that. Prosecutors <laughs> might ask a couple questions about that, but yeah. uh, that didn't happen.
0: Yep. So, anyway, interesting. Everybody check out uh, Jonathan Carl's new book, Uh, And in other DC news, Trump filed for an extension to respond to Jack Smith's filings, which oppose Trump's multiple motions to dismiss the case on statutory and constitutional grounds, including that 67 page omnibus reply that Jack Smith filed after getting permission from the court to respond to two of Trump's motions to dismiss in one reply. Of course, Trump opposed the DOJ filing an omnibus, he opposes everything. So Trump asked for an extension to file his response to Jack Smith's filings, and the DOJ opposed that, and again because of fuzzy math. Now, here's what the DOJ had to say about Trump wanting more time. The defendant seeks yet another extension, this time for the deadline for filing replies in support of his motions to dismiss the indictment. His motion to strike allegedly inflammatory allegations from the indictment and his motion to stay the proceeding pending resolution of his total presidential monarchy claim. Uh, excuse me. Immunity claim.
1: Uh, it's OK. Yeah, it's no problem.
0: You're rubbing off on me. <laughs> the court should deny the defendant's latest attempt at delay. Not just the court should deny the motion. The, the, the court should deny his latest attempt at delay. And here's a fuzzy for the fuzzy math part. Quote, he mentions that the government filed, quote, an oversized 64-page omnibus response to his 65 pages worth of motions to dismiss based on constitutional statutory grounds. Wrongly implying that the government's single organized opposition imposes some greater burden on him than the two separate 45-page filings the government was entitled to file under local rules. (laughs) We could have thrown 90 pages at you. We gave you 65 and you're mad. Uh, well, and Tr-
1: you know, in his defense, he's objecting to the fact that the government actually includes like arguments and law in their <laughs> filings. It makes it harder to read.
0: Yeah. And apparently math. Yeah. Uh, and Trump says he needs more time because his lawyers were very busy with the limited gag order appeal. To which Jack Smith says the defendant is represented in his appeal by three additional counsel, apparently retained solely for that purpose. But regardless of the DOJ's objection, Judge Chutkin granted Trump a brief extension. He had until November 15th to file his responses for the motion to strike the riot language, the January 6th riot language from the indictment, and his motion to stay the trial based on presidential immunity. And then she gave him until November 22nd to respond to the statutory constitutional and selective prosecution matters. Um, And you you remember, Jack Smith actually was like, can you decide those first? Because they are constitutional issues and subject to interlocutory appeal. But she only gave him till November 22nd. She didn't extend it that far. So we'll see what happens.
1: Hey, day here, a week there. It adds up. It adds up. It really does. I'm not saying she shouldn't have given him extra time, but there is an overall effect here that is uh, positive for the defendant. So we have that response from Trump's lawyers to the DOJ's opposition to striking the January 6th attack on the Capitol language from the indictment. Now, you'll recall that Trump filed a motion to remove what he considered, quote, incendiary and prejudicial language about the attack on the Capitol from the indictment. Uh, This is important also because striking that stuff from the indictment would, of course, then lead to uh, not being able to mention it at trial. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of... Uh, it it looks retrospective on the surface. People are like, who cares? The, the indictment's kind of past us now, but it's not. It it sets the stage for what you can talk about at trial. So DOJ filed their opposition, and that's the filing we went over in detail last week that indicated Jack Smith intends to prove at trial that Donald Trump was responsible for the attack on the Capitol and that he saw the angry mob as a tool in his pressure campaign against the former vice president and to obstruct an official proceeding. So Trump uses the same arguments he used in his initial motion to strike uh, when he says the prosecution falsely asserts that President Trump is responsible for the events at the Capitol on January 6. However, the indictment does not charge President Trump with causing or participating in those events, nor could it, as not a shred of evidence suggests President Trump called for any violence or asked anyone to enter the Capitol unlawfully. Fact: President Trump clearly and repeatedly called for peaceful and patriotic assembly consistent with the finest ideals of our country. <laughs> President Trump also auth- authorized over 10,000 National Guard troops to prevent violence on January 6, protection that was denied by Democratic Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Democrat Mayor of Washington D.C. Muro Bowser. Thus, even these transparently partisan prosecutors could not obtain an indictment on that basis. Prosecution now seeks to try President Trump for crimes the grand jury never charged based on actions President Trump did not take in a place he never was on January 6th, by people he never directed, and in opposite to actions he actually did take and statements he made all with the goal of inflaming and prejudicing the jury. That is a horribly confusing run-on sentence, but I'm just giving you the facts here, folks. So that's, Yeah, that's
0: and I was struck sad. by the in a place he never was language, considering, first of all, Stuart Rhodes, Oath Keeper, he was convicted for obstructing an official proceeding, 1512 C2, uh, as was Enrique Tarrio. And Stuart Rhodes was not in the Capitol on January 6th, and Tarrio was in a whole other city. He was in Baltimore on January 6th. So I think Trump has an uphill climb here for so many reasons, Uh, but I think the Department of Justice has sufficiently shown the role of the attack on the Capitol in Trump's plot to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power, and I think the judge will deny this motion to strike the language from the indictment. Of course, he'll probably appeal it. Yeah, I'm
1: pretty confident of that, too. I mean, it's a pretty basic uh, uh, element of our conspiracy law. People get convicted every day uh, for conspiracy to commit murder when they were nowhere near the murder. Right. They or they organized it. They maybe directed people, communicated that they wanted it done. Then it happens. You're guilty. You don't have to have actually be present and pull the trigger. So
0: yeah. um, and speaking that's kind of, of that, the this, same thing here. this past week on the Daily Beans podcast, I talked to Harry Dunn, uh, Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn. He uh, is the Capitol Police Officer who testified to the January 6th Select Committee um, after they asked him, like, w- what would you like us to do here? And he said, well, you know, if you somebody sends a hitman, you guys arrest the hitman, but you also arrest the person who sent the hitman. That's right. And he used the hitman analogy. And, and you know, I, I, I wanted to ask him, how did he feel after reading Jack Smith intends to put the riot at the Capitol front and center in his case in chief? And he intends to prove that Donald Trump did send that angry mob with the intent of obstructing the official proceeding that day. Uh, knowing they were violent and angry, and we're going to go after Pence and 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 all that. So, you know, I, I thought that, you know, finally, I felt like some of the folks who were there that day, um, you know, are a little more confident in what Jack Smith's purpose here is. Because when the indictment came out, it didn't seem like the riot was going to be part of it. It was a lot of, the, I mean, they mentioned the riot briefly in a few paragraphs, but you know, it was about the fraudulent elector scheme and the line to the vice president and, you know, all that stuff. But um, to to see that the the riot at the Capitol is going to be front and center and that Jack Smith intends to hold Donald Trump responsible for the attack on the Capitol, I think, um, makes a huge difference in the way a lot of us view how justice is going to be done in this case.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that a lot of people see this just the same way Harry does. They want to see accountability for what actually happened that day. Yeah, and all indications are that that's where the that's where the government is going.
0: Yeah, so of course Donald Trump wants to strike that language from the indictment because he knows it's central to prove his intent, his motive, and that he used this riotous, angry crowd as a tool in his campaign to retain power illegally. Um, all right, so uh, we have a couple more quick things to get to. We're going to head down to Florida, but we have to take another quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. Let's head to Florida. Um, Not on purpose. We just we have to talk about Florida uh, in this show because there's a case going on down there. Last week, we discussed Trump's motion to delay SEPA deadlines and that Judge Cannon had granted those delays, but kept the May 20, 2024 trial date, saying she would revisit the trial date question in a status conference on March 1st of next year. Well, in her ruling, Judge Cannon delayed the sepa Section 4 schedule. Now, normally Section 4 is ex parte with the government and the judge in camera going over classified material redactions in chambers without the defense being there. Uh, But Cannon delayed the deadlines for Section 4 filings and scheduled a hearing in March, leaving the possibility of an adversarial litigation open, meaning that Trump could file to take part in those hearings that are normally ex parte uh, and she gave the Department of Justice until December 4th to file its Section 4 motion, which is down way down the road. They don't need that much time. And then after that, she gives Trump 53 days to respond, which is just totally unnecessary. Now, Brian Greer, our SEPA expert, posited that she would use that Section 4 delay to push back the Section 5 deadlines. And you can hear him talk about this in depth on the latest podcast. Uh, the latest episode of It's Complicated with Asha Rangappa and Renato Mariotti. It's out right now, and they do a really deep dive into these delays. So this week, DOJ filed a motion to start the SEPA Section 5 deadlines by December 18th to avoid that delay um, after the long-ass SEPA Section 4 delays. And on Thursday, Judge Cannon just flat-out denied DOJ's motion, said she will not set SEPA 5 deadlines until after the status conference on March 1st. So there is no way this trial goes in May. Not a chance. Nope, nope. And this is, again, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts. Now, up in D.C., it's a week here, it's a day here, it's a few days here. Down here, it's 53 days. It's 60 days. It's another 23 days. And then it's a hearing in March. I mean, it's just pushed out so far. And just like Brian Greer has said, you have said, all the experts I've talked to, this trial probably isn't going to go before the election, and just there's just probably no way to do it.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. What we've what we were afraid of at the beginning, we've now seen uh, come true. And I should also point out that, like this idea that she's leaving the door open to a adversarial hearing over CIPA uh, Section Four issues, I can guarantee you. Well, I can't guarantee. I feel very confident in saying that the National Security Division of the Justice Department is watching this very closely. This is not called for in the statute. Uh, It is not done in national security cases. Uh, Section 4 uh, procedures are not adversarial. And that is an issue they will fight, I think, tooth and nail because they can't take the risk of this one-off, not very sophisticated, not very experienced, and not very efficient judge creating a loophole in the SEPA process that could affect national security cases, uh, around the, board, the rest yeah. of the country. It's not that it would be, it wouldn't be necessarily precedent because it's really just a trial level decision, but you can bet your bottom dollar that national security defendants, uh, their lawyers and national security cases, uh, around the country will see this and say, okay, the door's open. Let me start arguing for the same thing And in my case, and and those uh, those battles will start to make their way into appellate courts. And that's yeah. a very dangerous thing for the application of SEPA.
0: Now, Brian, I, I talked to Brian about it. He seems to think that DOJ will file an opposition to, especially Nauda and De Lovera being in the room, but any of the defense being in the room. And that he he says he thinks that she'll grant the DOJ's opposition to that and that it won't be adversarial and that the two-day hearing in March is could take a while because they have so many pages of classified documents that they're going to need to go over. Um, but that time is set aside in case it's needed. So we'll see what ends up happening. But um, this is the delay for SEPA procedures that we saw coming that will push back the entire trial for quite a while as well. I mean, if she's allowing... 80, 90 days worth of hearings and things on, on section four and section five isn't even going to start until after March. I mean, there's just no way. So, all right. Um, that is all of the news and motions and filings, except we do have one little bit of breaking news. It's a different special counsel. His name is Robert Herr. He was appointed by Merrick Garland to investigate President Joe Biden's handling of the classified documents found at his home in Delaware in an office that he was using uh, temporarily, I believe, after um, he was uh, vice president. And uh, according to CNN and sources, there will be no charges brought in this particular case. So there you go. No, And yeah. not because he's a sitting president, but because they didn't have enough evidence to to rise to the um, level of criminality to charge
1: yeah we've talked about this a lot It's basically you have to have some indication, some evidence that it was an intentional taking of the material, an intentional retention of national defense information or classified information and i don't think this surprises anyone um, it probably disappoints some people on the right uh but it's <laughs> it's there's never really been any indication of um intentional retention. No.
0: The only surprise um, is how long it took and why he decided yeah. to turn over every single rock in the world. Um, but You know,
1: yeah, you and I have talked about this. I've, you know, spoken to people who were connected to that investigation in one way or another, and they just the scope of it was enormous. They talked to really every human being who might have known someone who could have once stood next to someone else who, you know, might have had some relevance to uh, issues that, that really go back to uh, Biden's time in the Senate. So it's a lot of people they talked to just to make sure they couldn't probably be cr- criticized as yeah. um, having done a short job.
0: My best friend's brother's cousin's boyfriend's girlfriend knows this guy who heard from this girl who says that they saw President Biden pass out at 31 Flavors last night with classified documents in his hand. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So all those people you just, <laughs> you just identified got investigated by the special <laughs> counsel. But nevertheless, you, he's done... And the conclusion is in be interesting to see how the report comes in, how, uh, whether he tries I to kind of,
0: I don't want it. I just don't want it. Don't release it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's just going to be cherry picked and it's just going to be a Durham thing, you know, and, uh, yeah, totally. I, totally. it's just going to, it's going to be in every single Mar-a-Lago filing, um, for, from now until the end of eternity, which is probably when the trial date will be. So yep. Yeah, yep. we'll see. Yeah. All right, listener questions. If you have a listener question, there's a link in the show notes for you to go to a forum to send us your questions. What do we have this week, Andy?
1: So we have a really strong thing. Well, first of all, before I get into this week's question, I got to tell you, you're getting mad props for your Dead Kennedys reference in last week's show. Lots of people (laughs) thrown in their question (laughs) that the... uh, (laughs) holiday in Cambodia. Dead Kennedy's like threw them into some sort of like mid-90s flashback or mid-80s really flashback, which uh, they all appreciated. So there you go.
0: Wonderful. I'm glad it was recognized. Um, yeah, so it was. Kudos it was to impactful. our listenership. That's right.
1: That's right. So, okay, this week is touches on what we've just been talking about, which is like people have a lot of concerns about the delay in Florida and what it means. And so I'm going to hit on a couple of questions here and then we'll just wrap up the issues they raise in one uh, speed round. So Ken writes, sincerely, this is such a wonderful podcast, one I've listened to (laughs) weekly since the first one ever. You both do a remarkable job. I mean, just like really nice whole paragraph here, flattering us, which is of course what I deeply appreciate. And he (laughs) concludes by saying that he actually includes a link to the Wayne's world. uh, We're not worthy uh, clip, which I thought was a nice touch. Nice. Yeah. So, his question. The latest ruling from Judge Cannon seems so egregious that it appears to portend two possibilities. One, to circumvent the intent of SEPA and allow exposure of sensitive national security materials. Or two, her major delay that pretends not to be a delay looks likely to push his other trials back until after the election. So um, a lot of uh, concern there about the ramifications of the delay. And Ken finishes by saying, do you think it's possible that Jack Smith may withdraw the charges as a means of avoiding blowing everything else up and exposing sensitive secrets and then provide a public declination decision to Congress? I don't think so. But Catherine writes in with, I believe that Judge Cannon purposely did not reschedule her trial date despite moving all the other deadlines as a way to keep Fawny Willis from scheduling her trial. Danny comes in with, can Fonnie Willis schedule her trial for May, conditioned on the Cannon trial being moved, which might put Cannon in a delightful box? And then, of course, Dale uh, comes to us with, can Judge McAfee just go ahead and schedule the Georgia-RICO case to start in May, assuming that Judge Cannon will eventually delay her trial? In general, what's the process to schedule trials at the state and federal level? So we have a bunch of issues here. Do we think that Jack Smith would withdraw charges to avoid this dis- disaster in Florida? I don't think nope. so. What do you think?
0: No, nope, no. Nope. He'll he'll go to trial in 2025, 2026 if he has to. Totally agree. Um, totally uh, agree. You know, um Assuming Donald Trump doesn't win the presidency and shut down the entire uh, case. But I mean, it's already in court, right? So it's it's not something that can be shut down at the Department of Justice level, I don't think, but he can still impact it the way that Bill Barr impacted the stuff in the courts with Mike Flynn and Roger Stone. And there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of damage you can do um, to those cases. Yeah, withdrawing Um,
1: charges is like almost never ever happens unless you're Bill Barr and you don't want the president's friend to go to jail. So um, right, and I don't think she's
0: going to allow. I'm hoping, and you know, I got to go with Brian on this because he's the expert, but I don't think she's going to allow these documents to be unredacted and seen by Nauda and Oliveira or you know uh, anything like that. So um, at least that's my hope,
1: but. I agree with you on that. I hope I'm not just being an optimist, but um I don't think she wants to be responsible for that. Um so next issue can can um is it an attempt to block Fawny Willis's schedule? It's it starts to I conspiratorially it can look that way, but I really think that Canon is just very focused on her problem, what she perceives as her problems, be they scheduling uh, classified documents, what have you. Um, the question is, does it open an opportunity for Fawny to move her case up? And I think that that's a definite, uh, that, that could happen. She's got a lot of work to do before you bring a 17 person RICO case to court. Um, yeah. And she did their-
0: tell, she did tell the post that she planned, that she thought she'd be going at the end of next year, um, which says to me, that's when she would want to go to trial, how much time she needs to prepare, uh, how much more time she needs to flip witnesses uh, thats right and things like that. So I wouldn't expect Fonnie Willis's trial to start any time before the election. But, you know, that's just me. We'll see what ends up happening. And, of course, if the judge says, I want to go in May, Fonnie Willis might file a motion saying, I, I need more time. Yeah, But who knows?
1: Yeah. And then finally, coordination between state and federal. As we've said before, there's not much really there's no there's no requirement for it it rarely ever happens this is kind of an inter, you know a totally one off situation where you've got one very prominent defendant and he's got cases all over the place <laughs> um, we saw i mean you i think we are seeing a little bit of a volu- no i don't know that i would call it coordination but it does seem that um, alvin bragg has kind of mm-hmm. unilaterally said i'm going to pull mine back a little bit to let these others go first so i think you could see things like that happen but it's unlikely that the prosecutors will you know, get on the phone with each other and draw straws is to see who goes first.
0: No, and Chuck can calls people. She said in the trial date setting hearing that I that I was at uh, in person that she had spoken to uh, another judge in another case and uh, has decided based on all the information that she's going to schedule it on March 4th. Um, so we're really hoping, I mean, the one thing that, you know, can and could be doing is making the trial schedule ambiguous from May to the election. For all of his mm-hmm. trials, right? Because yeah. hers could be delayed anytime after May, and she's not saying when, and she won't say until March 1st. Right. And so she's kind of now blocked out May to the end of the year in a way, in her own way. Do you know what I mean? Like by leaving it yeah. open and not having a conference about the trial date until March 1st and putting all the sepa shit for Section 4 on past until March and then not even doing SIPA 5 until after March 1st. So, yeah. So she's kind she, of kind of blocking off the whole rest of the year there.
1: She is and by doing so she's creating a question for the other prosecutors and judges, but ultimately they're going to look at that block that that possible time period for her and they're going to be like we can't figure out what she's doing so we're just going to go ahead and do what we got to do. Yeah. They're going to they're gonna schedule their motions. They're going to schedule their trials and, and just be like, well, whatever.
0: Well, when, when we figure out what
1: she's doing, then fine. But we got we to gotta actually have a, a realistic time frame here.
0: Yeah. And if I'm Chutkin, I'm not worried about trying to finish my trial in time for May. Uh, it's not, it's not going to no. happen. <laughs> it's no. just not going to happen. Nope. Well, what great and thoughtful questions and, and excellent compliments. Thank you so yes, much, everybody. The, always. The, the link to submit your questions is in the show notes. That is our show for this week the week ending, uh, November 19th. Um, and it is the one year anniversary of Jack being, uh, being appointed and our one year anniversary next week, my friend. So it should be an interesting show to see what happens between now and then something always does
1: for real. And I will be back on terra firma us soil next week. I'm in, uh, coming to you from Hanoi today and, uh, excited, uh, to actually be getting home. So be there for the big one year anniversary show. Can't wait.
0: I can't wait either, my friend. All right, everybody, we'll talk to you next week. I've been Allison Gill.
1: I'm Andy McCabe.